I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Beth Bartel. This is KGU News How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 24th, 2013. Coming up, a CU entomologist discusses how monarch butterflies are preparing for a precarious winter and how other insects survive by making themselves taste disgusting. You should be looking out for monarchs and monarchs in your garden this fall. They're heading south and maybe using the milkweeds in your garden. And we talk batteries with CU Mechanical Engineer, who is stepping into the commercial market for electric cars. Capacity, cost, and safety. If we can simultaneously address these critical issues, we'll shift the storage paradigm. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We all know that humans need calcium for our bones, but few may realize that our forests need this metallic element too. Calcium is essential for healthy tree growth, but this calcium can be stripped from soil and at, by acid rain. In the case of the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in New Hampshire, an area affected by acid rain from coal-burning power plants, researchers found the soil to be 50% depleted of its calcium. The solution? A forest-wide supplement. In 1999, researchers tried to counter the effect of acid rain by dumping calcium pellets onto the forest from a helicopter, much like a plane would drop fire retardant or pesticide. The goal of the drop was to replenish the calcium in the soil over time. Fifteen years after the study began, scientists report 21% more wood and 11% more leaves in the watershed treated with calcium versus in an adjacent control site. The tree that responded most strongly? The sugar maple, the source of maple syrup. The researchers say that although the calcium treatment works, the solution is expensive enough that it could only be used on select forests. They caution that it is not a replacement for preventing acid rain, which would prevent the damage in the first place. The study was published last week in the journal Environmental Science and Technology Letters. For decades, the makers of diet sodas have promoted them as a way to provide the pleasurable taste of sweet without the calories. But many studies indicate that people who drink artificially sweetened sodas eat more real sugar and other high-calorie foods later in the day, as if the fake sugars trigger cravings for real calories. Now, new research from the Yale School of Medicine gives clues about why. In the study, scientists gave hungry lab mice access to water laden with very sweet-tasting fake sugars, or water with real sugar that didn't taste as sweet but offered more calories. Over time... The mice shunned the fake sugars and preferred the high-calorie real sugar water. The reason? The fake sugars failed to trigger a release of the feel-good hormone dopamine. The real sugars released more dopamine. The lead researcher in the study is Ivan de Araujo. De Araujo cautions that whether it's the diet soda or the real sugar one, too many sweet drinks can throw dopamine signaling out of whack and generate a vicious downward spiral. So he said that the downward spiral is basically the need to consume more and more to keep your levels of satisfaction constant. And then as for his own sugar consumption, De Araujo says it's never been, he's never been a big user of artificial sweeteners, or real ones for that matter. He drinks his coffee black. The research has just been published this week in the Journal of Physiology. Mark your calendars. Coming up this week is a chance to better understand the connections between climate and the recent devastating floods. Tomorrow, September 25th, a panel of science experts will discuss weather and climate related to the recent 100-year floods in Colorado. 
The experts will include Nolan Duskin, state climatologist for Colorado at Colorado State University, as well as several scientists at NOAA's Earth System Research Laboratory, Marty Herling, Kelly Mahoney, and Klaus Walter. Jeff Lucas, senior research associate with Western Water Assessment, will kick off the discussion. The panel will start at 11 a.m. in the series auditorium, room 338 at CU Boulder, and it'll last about 90 minutes. The event is open to the public, but space is extremely limited, so get there early. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. We can see it in nature's hues now. The aspen turning yellow, the shrubs turning orange and red. Autumn has arrived. As we unpack our coats and boots from storage boxes, well, so are insects in their own way, planning for a seasonal change. Take monarch butterflies. Those that live west of the Rocky Mountains travel to small groves of trees along the California coast, but those in our neighborhood, east of the Rockies, fly farther south to very specific forests high in the mountains of Mexico. Their journey south, and for sure life thereafter, is a precarious one. Dr. Dean Bowers is a professor and curator of entomology at the CU Boulder Museum of Natural History. She's joined us in the studio to discuss what's happening now with monarchs and other butterflies, and she'll also discuss how the ability of certain insects, such as caterpillars, defend themselves against predators by making themselves taste pretty nasty, and being how that is being affected by human disturbances, climate change and nitrogen deposition, for one. The major disturbance is, is the nitrogen, so she'll talk about all these. Dr. Bowers, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So why don't we start with, um, I know I've started to see some of these monarchs. What, what's happening now, and, and when do they head south? So what's happening right now is monarchs have begun a probably 2,000-mile journey down to Mexico. And what we're seeing is these butterflies heading south. They may leave an egg or two on the milkweeds in your garden, which can grow up to be caterpillars that turn into butterflies, and then they themselves may head south. And these butterflies may be coming from as far north as southern Canada on their way down to Mexico. Well, so just from here, 2,000 miles. Right. And this is multiple generations of butterflies, right? Right. So in the spring, they recolonize north from Mexico up as far as southern Canada. And then in the fall, they start heading back down. It's individual butterflies can't go from Mexico to Canada and then back down to Mexico, but it's been recorded that individual butterflies can go as far as 3,000 miles, a God, single butterfly. That's amazing. Really amazing. And so milkweed, particular types of milkweed and other plants as well, or is that really their, their main staple? So their main food is, as caterpillars is milkweed all different species of milkweeds. We have several species around here that they can use. There's a very common one that grows along roadsides and in disturbed areas called common milkweed. And the butterflies, however, don't feed on milkweed leaves. They feed on nectar. So planting flowers, nectar flowers, in your garden can be helpful for the adult butterflies. But planting milkweeds in your garden can be great for the caterpillars. What about for other plants in your garden? A lot of people say they're... Sort of invasive or... Milkweeds mm -hmm. are invasive. We have 
native milkweeds that aren't invasive at all, they can grow very quickly and spread. They spread by underground rhizomes, so they can make a large stand of milkweeds in your garden, but they're not considered invasive. They're a native species here in Colorado. So by and large, by the end of October, they're pretty much on their way south? That's right. That's right. And talk about some of the problems with their destination. I mean, they're where they go is fixed, right? But the condition of what of the forest in Mexico is, is pretty right. much under threat, right? So the the monarchs are heading to a particular mountain range in northern Mexico near Oaxaca and they overwinter in groves of trees that are at an elevation where there can be a little bit of bad weather sometimes, but also it's an area where there's a lot of logging going on. And so there's several issues with the overwintering sites. One is illegal logging because the areas are protected, but also cattle grazing, um, the fact that the climate is changing and there's more... Uh, dramatic weather events, which can result in heavier snows than usual. So these monarchs have to survive snow, and they have to keep from freezing. And then in the spring, around February, they start to become active again, and there needs to be enough nectar sources for them to feed on in in order to acquire the energy that they need to start heading back north again. Yeah, it takes a lot of energy. (laughs) Yes, yes. And so you said cattle grazing. Is that from land conversion? A lot of the land that was forest is being converted cattle? Uh, A combination of things. Mm -hmm. So with the logging, part of the reason for the logging is not only to get the wood, but also to provide more pasture for cattle. And are we seeing a big population drop? So people, researchers who work on monarchs have documented that the area that the monarchs are inhabiting in their overwintering sites is declining. And we're talking about millions, if not billions, of butterflies. And so... Converging on a space of what, roughly? Oh, they're varied in the places where they occur. So I would say 50 square miles, maybe that's an off the top of my Mm -hmm. head um, estimate. But they're also moving to some other places. So some of the places, there's several different sites in this area where they occur. And some of the sites that had previously been inhabited are now not inhabited, and they're moving to other areas, which may not be as suitable for overwintering as the original areas in which they occur. So they're adapting somewhat, but... Right. Pretty much under threat. Is the Mexican government, or for that matter, ours, doing much about it? Yes. There's a really great collaboration between our government and the Mexican government to try and protect these areas. So there's some hope. Yes, there is. (laughs) Meanwhile, watch them carefully. And then I wanted to ask about the other area of research that really fascinates me that you do, and that's this plant-insect natural enemy relationship. Mm -hmm. Talk about that and sort of what's going on now with some of the insects. So I work on another group of butterflies, uh, checker spot butterflies, which like monarchs have the ability to take chemical compounds from the plants they feed on and make themselves taste really bad to potential (laughs) predators. And in fact, monarchs, as well as the butterflies that I work on, if they, certain um, predators actually eat these guys, and then instead of being able to digest them, they throw them up. They vomit. (laughs) It's really awful. So the chemical compounds that these insects store result in a predator throwing them up. And that's a really strong signal that do not eat me again. And so they move on to other things. Right. And they know not to eat. Exactly. Exactly. 
And, uh, and so I'm interested in how human impacts on the environment can alter plant chemical content, which can then play up and affect insects that are feeding on those plants and ultimately the interaction of those insects with their predators. So, so whereas they might have been really stinky and nasty tasting before, they may not be now. They, they right? may not be as bad tasting as they were previously. Got exactly. A bit, a bit more time. Could you give an example? You mentioned before the nitrogen from fertilizer runoff and such is having right, an effect. Right, right. So, so one thing that can affect the chemical content of the plant is fertilization. And so agricultural runoff or nitrogen deposition due to pollution. Meaning it's coming from the atmosphere from NOx emissions or? Exactly, mm -hmm. and it comes down in rain and snowfall. That gets into the soil, that increases nitrogen availability to plants, and that can alter plant chemistry. It's like crack, right? Uh, maybe. <laughs> or, or generally they're, they're growing more and the, faster? They, they grow faster, mm -hmm. but their chemical content is lower. And mm -hmm. so what that means for caterpillars feeding on those plants is that they have less of these compounds that they can acquire to make themselves taste bad. So in a situation where there's more nitrogen in the soil, the caterpillars and the butterflies resulting from those caterpillars may be less well defended against their own predators. And you know that from population studies or more from um, lab work? Well, we know from work in the field that nitrogen deposition dramatically alters nitrogen content of soil and that can then affect the plants. But we've done laboratory experiments that then look more specifically at how that might affect insects that are feeding on those plants and the interaction of those insects with the things that want to feed on them. Well, thank you so much. So many things happening underground and close to the ground that we may not see. So that was Dr. Dean Bowers, a professor and curator of entomology at the CU Boulder Museum of Natural History. Thanks so much. Thank you. Tune to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Beth Bartelm. One of the greatest limitations of effectively using clean and renewable energy sources is a simple device with which we are all undoubtedly familiar, the battery. Here to talk to us about how batteries work, why batteries are such a stumbling block in the current race to energy solutions, and how he is involved in developing what just may be the next big thing is University of Colorado researcher Conrad Stolt. Dr. Stoltz is an associate professor of mechanical engineering and a co-founder of Solid Power, Inc., where he is working to develop an all-solid-state lithium metal battery. Conrad, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Um, let's start really simple. Let's talk about uh, a battery. We all use them, but um, I'm not sure how many of our listeners actually know how they work. I don't know a lot about batteries. So um, break down for us the anatomy of a battery and how they work. Okay. Uh, well, if you <clears throat> want to take a simple... Uh example, which could be like an Oreo cookie, you have the uh, two cookies and then the uh, Oreo filling in the center. Uh, if you could think of each cookie as being an electrode, and in the case of a lithium-ion battery, each of these electrodes stores lithium. <clears throat> and then we can generate a current by moving the lithium ions between the electrodes. 
and the electrolyte which separates those electrodes basically acts as the medium which allows lithium ion transport. And that's the cream and the cookie. That is the cream and the cookie. The cream is the electrolyte. Okay. And probably the biggest engineering challenge for batteries. Okay. And so quite simply, as you shuttle these lithium ions back and forth between the two electrodes, you go through charge and discharge cycles. Okay. And what's the significance of lithium? Why are we using lithium here? Uh, lithium, uh, basically each lithium carries uh, one electron. And lithium is a great uh, electrode material as well as charge carrier because it's small. And uh, because it's small, it's also light. So the lighter the materials we integrate into our batteries, the higher the ultimate uh, energy density that we can achieve. Okay. And when you talk about these electrodes, that the ends of the cookies, is one the anode and one the cathode? That's right. Is that how it works? Okay. Yeah. So, so could you define anode and cathode for us? <clears throat> well, uh, if we take the example of the Oreo cookie again. Sounds good to me. It seems like it's working. <laughs> um, you have a uh, positive electrode, which is the cathode. And so upon discharge, you move lithium ions across the cell between the two electrodes. They incorporate into the cathode and pick up uh, electrons in the process that have been released to do work, say, in like lighting a light bulb or powering your car. Then on the charge cycle, those lithium are shuttled back across from the cathode to the anode, um, and that's known as basically charging or recharging your battery. Okay, and so... So you guys are addressing, you're addressing the cream of the cookie. You guys are looking at that electrolyte, that medium that, that, that transfers or allows those elect, the, um, the lithium ions to move back and forth between these two. So sure. Could you elaborate yeah, we on are, that? Yeah. We're actually focusing on all parts because that's how you really are going to win. Um, and again, the, the challenges are basically increased capacity. If you can increase your capacity, you can get greater energy density. And for example, you can increase the distance your electric vehicle can go by maybe up to three times on a single charge. Um, we're looking at only uh, trying to integrate low-cost materials. That lowers the overall cost and obviously gets these batteries uh, implemented more widely into various, say, electric vehicle technologies and, and uh, portable electronics, etc. Right? Um, and lastly, and perhaps most important right now is safety. And so we're choosing a new battery architecture that we consider to be have ultimate safety. And what is that battery architecture? Could you speak to that? Sure. So the current uh, lithium-ion rechargeable batteries use a liquid electrolyte that resides between the two electrodes. Um, as we're all seeing in the news, that electrolyte can be quite volatile um, and dangerous if the battery short circuits. Uh, what we're doing is developing an all-new battery that has all ceramic or solid materials. So the actual electrolyte that resides between the two electrodes is basically a, a solid material. So it's non-volatile um, and conducts lithium-ion really quite well. And is the only um, is the benefit mainly safety, or is it also are you also reducing the weight by by being able to use these? the safer materials, because my understanding is that with the, um, the, the liquid medium, you have to build around that with extra materials. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So over the last four years, uh, in the college of engineering at CU, my colleague and I have been developing, um, first a new, uh, cathode material 
This is based again on these very inexpensive earth abundant materials. This cathode material has about 10 times the capacity of, of current rechargeable battery cathodes. Um, if we can also improve safety, you get to reduce the amount of basically body armor that surrounds these batteries. That reduces their weight. So as a consequence, the overall energy density of the battery can go up dramatically. Can you explain the cathode material a little bit? Is that too technical? Or could you tell us a little bit about what makes this cathode different? Uh, well, what makes it different is uh, it's uh, basically composed of uh, a number of different powders. Um, one of the primary powders um, was developed in our laboratories at CU, and it's basically built upon pyrite chemistry. If you're uh, familiar with pyrite, that's one of the most abundant minerals on the planet. It's iron disulfide, also known as fool's gold, but it turns out it also has a tremendously high capacity for lithium ions. So that is uh, our primary uh, uh, energy storage material in the cathode, and then we also integrate in uh, a solid electrolyte, which allows lithium ions to move through the, the cathode layer, as well as some other material that allows electrons to move. So we spend a lot of time creating this kind of synergistic uh, composition that uh, gives you that uh, performance. So safety is addressed by having the all-solid-state battery. Um, how and weight is addressed by using lighter materials. What, what kind of, how, could you give us a comparison of weight of um, a current, say, you know, the best battery on the market now compared to what you guys are working on? Sure. So if we think about uh, a rechargeable lithium-ion battery and, say, an electronic device, uh, those typically have a uh, energy density right now right around basically 200 watt-hours per kilogram. Um, and at least 60% of the overall weight of the battery is basically safety devices, so this body armor as well as temperature management in some cases. Um, basically, if we can reduce that by a factor of two in terms of what we have to encase our batteries in, um, while simultaneously using these very high-capacity materials, we can basically double, almost triple the, the overall energy density in the battery. What, and, um, is, our, is the battery um, specifically for cars, or would it be able to use, be used for other devices, for our phones, for um, computers? For where do, you, where do you guys see this technology being applied? Uh, sure. I, we think it could be applied across all technologies, ultimately. It would simply displace the current liquid-based lithium-ion batteries. Right now, our funding from the Department of Energy uh, for the company is focused on electric vehicle um, and, and targeting development for, the, for that uh, technology first. Um, um, let's see, I think we have time for one more um, quick question. Um, how far how far do you think a car could go with this battery? Uh, well, in principle, if you're able to double or triple the uh, energy density of a battery, you can double or triple the range on a single charge. So that would be sort of a optimistic number. All right, Dr. Stolt, thank you so much for joining us today. That was Dr. Conrad Stolt, Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Colorado here in Boulder. Dr. Stolt is also a co-founder of Solid Power, Inc., and is working to develop an all-solid-state lithium metal battery to get us farther in our electric cars.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Susan Moran has been our executive producer this quarter, ending today. Co-producing today's show uh, were Susan Moran and Shelley Schlender, and thanks to Shelley for her headline contribution. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, additional music from Lee Chang, and The Electric Company. Can't Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time. No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Susan Moran.